Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. To my loyal bed crimers, a special hello. And to anyone new to the channel, it's great to have you here. I cover all things true crime. My forte is getting straight to the nitty gritty and leaving out all the fluff that can get in the way and take a lot of your time. If after listening to or watching the video, you find you enjoyed it or learned something new from it, please hit the like button and please consider subscribing. Now let's dig in. As snow carpets the off-campus rental home where Kaylee Gonsalves, Maddie Mogan, Zana Kernadel, and Ethan Chapin lost their lives, and Idaho State Police now patrol the University of Idaho campus, and the general Moscow community, the case remains largely a mystery. A squad car remains in the driveway of the rental home at 1122 King Road. The only thing missing are the slain students' vehicles and the people who once lived there. The cars were carted away yesterday and taken to a more secure location. Note that this is 16 days after the crime. You'd think those vehicles would have been processed for forensic evidence well before day 16. It feels like these cars are something of an afterthought, an idea that maybe came up after the investigators exhausted all their other avenues. Forensic coroner Joseph Scott Morgan recently appeared on News Nation, and he said that had he been in charge, those vehicles would have been taken away for processing from day one. Morgan stated that the cars being outside the home for the past two weeks indicates that the investigators likely didn't find any evidence on the exterior of the vehicles. But now, after perhaps hitting a dead end, the investigators are realizing that there could be important trace and biological evidence inside the vehicles. Morgan brought up the possibility that the perpetrator could have been in one of those vehicles at some point. Perhaps he rode in one of them on the night of the crime, or maybe he sat in one of them after committing the crime. Per Morgan, every inch of each vehicle needs to be scoured and examined. But Morgan also pointed out that any biological evidence inside the cars could have degraded over the past two weeks as they sat in the driveway, which is upsetting to hear. You'd think that the small Moscow Police Department, with assistance from the Idaho State Police and the FBI, would have known that those vehicles needed to be processed from the jump. Why wasn't that done? Moving on to persons of interest and or suspects in the case, according to the Lata County Prosecutor, who spoke with reporter Brian Enton of News Nation, the investigators currently have no suspects. The prosecutor said that there were people of interest over the past two weeks, but all of them have been eliminated. I have to say, 
it's very deflating to hear this. I'm getting Delphi vibes and they don't feel good. Now, maybe the police are playing mind games with the public in a bid to play mind games with the perpetrator, but I don't really think so. I'm getting the feeling they really have no potential persons of interest on their radar at the moment. Brian Enton from News Nation, who is currently in Moscow, reported that he's heard that the investigators are in no rush to open up the girl's rental house and release it from being a crime scene. But then Ashley Banfield, also of News Nation, stated that she'd heard rumors that the police are planning on releasing the house soon and that maybe it's because there are still three living residents of that home whose belongings remain inside. You heard me right. Three. It has just been reported that there is a six-person's name on the lease. Now, Aaron Snell, the communications director for the Idaho State Police, made it clear that this sixth person was not at home when the crime occurred. Snell did not release the name of that person. Now, early on, I told you guys about the 40-year-old son of the home's owner and that that 40-year-old guy was listed as living at 1122 King Road. So now I'm wondering if he's the person who occupied the sixth bedroom, which would be the second one on the second floor. Remember, Zana Kernado's room was also on that second floor. And I'm pretty sure we will be hearing within the next day or so that this 40-year-old man was the sixth roommate in the off-campus rental home. It would seem likely that these three remaining roommates are probably eager to get back into the house only because they want to get their belongings and then get out of there and never go back. I cannot imagine anyone wanting to live in that house ever again. I hate to say that, but honestly, it's going to have the same bad juju feel as the house Shanann Watts and her daughter's lived in with Chris Watts, although I heard that that house just recently was sold. On the University of Idaho campus, at least one sorority house has now hired ex-military security guards to stand watch 24-7, and students are being encouraged to walk in pairs when out and about. Brian Enton stated that most of the students and residents have taken to not going out at night. In addition, because many students have decided not to return to the campus for in-person classes, and many of them had jobs in local businesses in Moscow, some establishments are now short on staff. Other businesses have taken to walking their employees out to their cars after dark. What's abundantly clear from all of this is that this entire town is suffering. It is not the same as it was prior to November 13th, 2022. It's small town. You don't have to lock your doors. Innocence is gone. And no one, except maybe the perpetrator, feels safe there anymore. 
In essence, Moscow and its residents have also been victimized by this brutal crime. Speaking of Sunday, November 13th, let's go back to that day for a second. It turns out there was another incident early that morning around the same time the police are saying that this crime commenced. At about 3 a.m., the Moscow police blotter for that day and time indicates there was an alcohol offense at 3 a.m. on a field located on Taylor Avenue. Its name is Band Field, and it's not far from the Sigma Chi Fraternity House, where Ethan Chapin and Zana Kurnadel were seen at the party between 8 p.m. and 9 p.m. on Saturday, nor is it far from the girls' off-campus rental home. Is this incident related in some way to the crime? That 3 a.m. witching hour seems awfully suspicious. Ashley Banfield of News Nation said that she was thinking that maybe there was a small after-party post the official soiree at the Sigma Chi frat house, perhaps at the girls' rental home. That could mean additional people were in that house on King Road early Sunday morning. Banfield was speculating, but I'm wondering if she has access to some inside information that the rest of us don't. By the way, we now know that Ethan Chapin's brother, Hunter, and his sister, Maisie, were also at the Sigma Chi party on Saturday night. Hunter took his sister as his plus one. Ethan, Hunter, and Maisie Chapin were triplets. I'm hoping that Hunter and Maisie have been able to share any strange events that may have gone down at the frat party that night and possibly are able to shed light on what Ethan and Zana were doing after they left the frat party and before they returned to the house on King Road. I say that because there is an odd post floating around Reddit, which of course we know we cannot trust as a reliable source, about some sort of fight that may have occurred at the Sigma Chi frat party Saturday night. Again, it's unverified, but if it turns out to be true, it could be relevant to the case. I'm going to read that post to you right now. Here goes. I have it on good authority. Cousin is a cop in a nearby town, but called in to help in Moscow once school started back up. Apparently, the investigation is looking directly at the Sigma Chi frat party Ethan and Zana attended from 8 to 9 that night. He did not have any update on their timeline after they left 9 to 1.45 a.m., but did say it looks like the investigation is honing in on two suspects from the party that night, and an update should publicly name them by the end of the week. Sigma has made their socials private and removed all information from Facebook going back a few years. They believe Ethan and Zana were the main targets stemming from an argument that night. Downstairs survivors could hear two males rummaging through the room above them, figured it was an after-party, locked the doors, and went to bed. When they discovered them in the morning, 
about 30 minutes before the 911 call, they called their friends at Sigma to come over, who in turn called the police. It's right across the street, and for whatever reason, they believed it was people from Sigma upstairs around 2.15 that night. Back door was left open, one dead in bed, the other blocking their room's door with their body. Police just updated their Facebook to reiterate they are not looking into the activities of that night, fight, drugs, etc., and spilled into anger later that night and got them killed. Also, didn't want to release profile they created as it would cause undue fear in the community, i.e. Greek life, end quote. Now, we've seen anonymous posts before that end up being fake, so that very well may be the case with this one, especially since the police have said that they have no suspects at this point. But I'm hoping that this post turns out to be true only because this crime needs to be solved ASAP. The other big news of the day are the conflicting statements the Moscow Police Department and the Lata County Prosecutor's Office have made over the past few days about whether or not the women's rental home and some of its occupants were targeted or not. Back on November 16th of 2022, just three days after the crime, Police Chief James Fry told reporters that investigators believed the crime was a targeted attack, but he and the detectives never explained why investigators were thinking that, and it was hard to understand how they could come to such a conclusion without having a suspect in custody. Earlier in the week, the Lata County Prosecutor's Office suggested that the suspect or suspects specifically looked at the residence where three of the victims lived, and they further declared that one or more of the occupants were undoubtedly targeted. But yesterday, Wednesday, November 30th, the police released a statement saying the prosecutor misspoke when he said that the suspect or suspects specifically looked at the residents and that one or more of the occupants were undoubtedly targeted. This came as a shocker after the cop's earlier statement back on November 16th. Then, this morning, Thursday, December 1st, 2022, the police made yet another statement. This time, they said that they still believe the attack was targeted, although they haven't yet concluded if the target was the residents or its occupants. So it sounds like they are unclear as to whether the perpetrator decided to hit that house because it was an easy house to prey upon, or if he hit that residence because he had targeted one or more of its occupants. Clearly, these entities in Moscow are not used to dealing with a crime of this magnitude, and they have some loose cannon voices out there who are not chatting with the others before they make statements. It's like when the coroner talked about the crime scene and the object used in the crime. 
she probably should have met with the Moscow Police Department prior to making those statements. Hopefully, they will create a system where all entities can be on the same page so that information doesn't leak out and the information that does come out is uniform across the page. We've seen how that particular rental home is located on a property that makes it ripe in a sense for an attack. It has trees lining the back edge of the property with a flat expanse of open land behind it, followed by the Sigma Chi Fraternity House. That's the frat house where Ethan Chapin and Zana Kernado were seen at some point between 8 and 9 p.m. Now we're hearing that they were simply seen during that period. They were not necessarily at the party from 8 to 9 p.m. Note that the walk from the Sigma Chi fraternity house is a short distance, and those staying there can actually see the girls' house at 1122 King Road from some of their windows. I have felt that it's likely that Ethan and Zana maybe walked to the party that night and then walked back home, although it was a chilly night hovering around 27 to 28 degrees Fahrenheit, and Ethan's red Jeep was parked in the parking area outside the rental home. But back to that tree line behind the girl's house. Someone could have concealed themselves in those trees at night and not been seen. To the rental home's right, if you're standing inside looking out from the front door, there's an imposing brick apartment complex, as well as an unlit and often quiet parking lot up a hill behind it. The wall of that apartment complex has no windows, and at the time of the crime, it had no security lights or motion detectors. So at night and in the early morning hours, those two areas, the area paralleling the girl's home with the quiet, isolated parking lot and the area behind the rental home with the trees, were both pitch black, save for an occasional car, maybe, pulling in or out of the parking lot. Jeremy Reagan, a guy who lives in the apartment complex next door to the girl's house, said that if someone were hiding in the trees at the back of the home at night, that person would not be seen by anyone walking in the area because of the darkness. The only way someone could have spotted another person hanging out in those trees was if they were driving into the parking lot at night with their headlights on. Also, the girls' rental house had no motion detector lights in the front or the back, no surveillance camera, and no home security system that we know of other than the front door with a widely shared security code. Brian Enton spoke to residents around there, and they reiterated that the girls' house was definitely a party house, and there were parties there pretty much every weekend with all sorts of people coming and going. The perpetrator likely had taken note of all the location details before committing the crime. He alone knew how vulnerable that residence was to a home invasion and an attack. 
So he had to have spent time looking at the house from every angle, and he also likely checked out the surrounding properties, looking for things like ring cameras and anything else that might pose a risk to him getting away with the crime. So I guess it's possible that if this perpetrator just wanted to indulge in some sicko desire to hurt other human beings, he could have deducted that the house was a good one because it would help him evade detection. Perhaps this house offered an isolated setting and random female victims, or perhaps it offered both an isolated setting and particular female victims. Let's hope the investigators figure that out and soon. This community having to live in this scary limbo must be so stressful. But while the house is semi-isolated by virtue of its setting, the house is in a densely populated neighborhood, and it's on a cul-de-sac with one way in and one way out. It makes you think someone had to have seen something. But then again, the crime occurred at a time when most people were sleeping, and as we've seen, there don't seem to be ring cameras anywhere around those places. I do feel that the narrative behind the scenes with the investigators is that there was one male perpetrator who carried out the crime with one sharp-edged object. If there had been more than one perpetrator, the student's wounds would likely make that clear, because two perpetrators would likely use two different objects, with each object leaving different-looking wounds, wounds of different depths. Of course, it's also possible that multiple perpetrators shared one sharp-edged object, or multiple perpetrators each had the exact same sharp-edged object in hand. Brian Enton is finding it hard to get people in Moscow to talk about the case, the victims, and the events of that Saturday and Sunday in mid-November. The fraternities and sororities seem to be on some sort of lockdown, and nobody's talking. People Enton approached at a local Moscow bar told him that the police have told them not to talk to the media. Yesterday, the University of Idaho held a candlelight vigil for the four students. During that vigil, we learned that Kaylee Gonsalves and Maddie Mogan were in the same bed when the perpetrator attacked them. I believe that this may have been a slip of the tongue. Kaylee's father, Steve Gonsalves, shared that information when talking about the special bond that Kaylee shared with her best friend, Maddie. He said, and I quote, They just found each other, and every day they did homework together, they came to our house together, they shared everything. In the end, they died together in the same room, in the same bed. End quote. Kaylee's dad also stated, and I quote, You can't imagine sending your girls to college and then they come back in an urn. End quote. 
so sad. Clearly, Maddie was like a second daughter to Steve and his wife, and Kaylee was like a second daughter for the Mogans. All the victims' families, aside from Zana Kernadel's, spoke during the vigil. Zana's family were not in attendance. Ethan's mother and Maddie's dad were particularly eloquent, and it was easy to feel the full weight of these families' losses. It's easy to forget at times that these are real people and that this horrific crime really happened. It's not some sick plot twist in a horror movie. Ethan's mom, Stacy, said, and I quote, The circumstances that bring us here tonight, they're terrible. The hardest part, we cannot change the outcome. End quote. That really cuts to the heart of the tragedy. It cannot be undone. Ben Mogan, Maddie's dad, talked about his daughter's love for live music, her strong work ethic, and how grateful he was that Maddie was able to experience the love of a boyfriend before she departed this earth. Maddie is the Mogans' only child. It's devastating that they cannot grab hold of another child to find comfort. You can bet that the police had detectives in plain clothes embedded in the crowd to see if anyone was acting strangely during the vigil. Many believe it's likely that the perpetrator attended it. How scary is that? At this point, the town of Moscow remains traumatized. Hearing of a crime where four students were ambushed very early in the morning with a sharp-edged object, and knowing the perpetrator is still out there, is likely making it hard for the residents to sleep. Guys, let's pray that this crime gets solved quickly. The families, the University of Idaho students and staff, and the residents of Moscow need quick resolution so that they can commence healing, grieving, and living. Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories, do me a favor, please smash that like button, leave me a comment, subscribe to my channel, share the video, and please consider a membership to support the channel.